John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for what we are listening to today as we hear your word spoken and sung and proclaimed. Holy Spirit, would you just infuse this moment with your presence that we may hear from you anew and afresh and that we would take that testimony into our days and the lives of those we touch. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, welcome again to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. And I am your associate pastor who gets to come and share the word with you today. And I'm blessed to do so as we increasingly see what God is doing in the Gospel of John. I want to encourage you, if you've not been able to join us the last two weeks, as we've looked at the first 18 verses of John's Gospel, you can catch up via our podcast or on the website as we dive into this exciting study. We're not exactly sure how long it's going to take us, but we know we're going to get there. Well, the first 18 verses often are referred to as the prologue, the introduction, the setting of the scene. And I don't know how many of you were taught in college how to write essays like I was, which was you write an introduction that says what you're going to say, you then write what you're going to say, and then you write a conclusion to say what you said. And that's exactly what we see here. Having covered his intent in the prologue, John now moves to tell the narrative, and he begins with the first week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And this is mapped out day by day. More specifically than in any other of the Gospels, you'll see it, it'll say the day, and then the next day, and the next day, and the next. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be spending uh, time in the first week of Jesus' ministry, 
Uh, after today, we're going to see the call of the first disciples. We're going to see those disciples calling others to follow Jesus. And then we're going to see a typical Jewish mother insist that her son provide for the needs of a wedding party at Canaan. But the thing is, you see, John is not interested in merely getting a biography of Jesus out there. He's interested in the reader coming to know Jesus and a saving knowledge of Christ. Towards the end of the gospel, in kind of the beginning of of John's conclusion at the end of chapter 20, he really states this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you may have life in his name. And that's the testimony of the gospel writer. And he begins as he means to go on. And we're going to look today at the first couple of days in the narrative. And they are all to do with the testimony of the other John. You remember John the Gospel writer and John the Baptist, two different people, both called John. How many Bills we got in the room? How many Johns? Dugs, yes, you know how it is. Okay, we're looking at the testimony of John the Baptist, written down by John the Gospel writer, with the express purpose of giving testimony. Well, last week... Pastor Dustin shared the fact that if you've become a Christian, then God will have used the testimony of somebody else in order to draw you, draw you unto God. Someone who has been a mentor to you, an example to you, perhaps even a challenge to you. God has pointed you to himself through the testimony, through the words of someone else, who has then pointed you very directly to the word of God, the written word that we know and we love. I know for me, it was a number of people. It was pastors, it was teachers, it was friends, it was family members. And although I gave my life to Christ as a child at least once or twice. It was 26 years and three days ago in a prayer meeting with my cousin Gail that I know for absolute sure and absolute certain that Christ loved me and he saved me. And I've still got the page that was written by Gail that night and the next morning she handed me a Bible. And I won't read you the whole page. You can come in my office and read if you like. It is lovely. But... One of the things it said was, use this Bible every day, if only a verse, because it will make the world of difference. What Gail and others did for me was to point me to Christ, to put him in front of me so that I would be able to really consider who he is. They were examples of his love, and they shared examples from their own lives as well. And here's the thing. If you've been saved by the grace of God and you're a Christian, then you have the responsibility and the ability to point others to Jesus. And if you're not yet a Christian, then there are people in your life that God is using to point you towards Jesus, to consider who he is. Because that's how God works. 
Throughout history, throughout Scripture, he has worked in the same way. The people of God are his hands and his feet. And if the church is the body and Christ is the head, we have to have our movement in and through him. So during the first two days of Jesus' ministry, we really see the testimony of John the Baptist being the practical example of how to point other people to Christ. So this is, message is entitled, for what a title's worth, Testimony Training 101. So here we go. And the first thing that we see in all of this is how important it is to answer questions openly and honestly. Verse 19. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, the Jews here referred uh, is not the whole nation of Israel. It's not every Jewish person. It is a specific group. And in fact, when you see the Jews numerous times in the gospel and in the other gospels, nine times out of ten, I would suggest it refers to those who would oppose Jesus, the religious authorities, those who thought they were really the ones in charge. And they were really worried by this apparent change in the approach to preaching and teaching the word. And why then did they not come themselves? Why did they send the Levites and the priests? Well, John the Baptist was a priest. An unconventional one, I grant you, but a priest nonetheless, because you had to, in order to be a priest in those days, you had to be of the house and the lineage of Aaron. And if you were of that house, you had to be a priest. You had to be involved in the family business. And John's father, we know, was a priest. And so John, by his very birth, was a priest. And so the Levites and the priests, they come. They come to check up on him. Pharisees sending them to do their dirty work, if you like. So the suspicion of a new way of doing things. Nothing new. Nothing changes. There's always suspicion of newness and of changes. As long as the message doesn't change, the container can And yet, John is not something new. In many ways, he is of old. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, clearly, we are not all John the Baptist. We're not all going to wear camel hair and eat locusts and live in the desert. And how many people attempted? Okay, no one. Right, okay. But this question, who are you? How many people have ever been asked that? Who are you? Who are you? It seems that our society today is all about identity, isn't it? It's about where are you from? What job do you do? Who are your family? What's your political viewpoint? Well, from the answer of John the Baptist, we can see that all that really matters is who you are to God. And for us living in post-resurrection times, all that matters is who we are in Christ. That's the answer that we need to give. But John, of course, starts by saying who he isn't. He blows their expectations out of the water a little bit. Verses 20 and 21, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. John's quick to say he is not the Messiah. And so they ask him, are you one of the ones that's supposed to come before the Messiah? Are you Elijah? No. 
Are you the prophet? Now, the prophet, for those of you who don't know, is who Moses referred to thousands of years before as one who would come. Well, actually, Moses was referring to Christ himself. But by this time, they thought the prophet was somebody who was going to come again before the Messiah. And so now they are perplexed on who John could possibly be. And they asked, again, very directly, who are you? And John answers in verses 22 to 23. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And he's referring to Isaiah 43 to 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low and uneven ground shall become level and the rough places are plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, be see, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How can we make paths straight today? How can we give directions to those who are seeking Jesus The reality is that God will and we need to meet people where they are. J.K. Johnston put it this way. Christ met unbelievers where they were. He realized what many Christians today still don't seem to understand. Cultivators have to get out in the field. According to one count, the Gospels record 132 contacts that Jesus had with people. Six were in the temple four in the synagogues, and 122 were out with the people in the mainstream of life. Anybody ever asked you for directions? Nobody? All right, everybody relies on the cell phone these days, right? Okay, but you remember the old days when cars would draw up and ask you for directions? Have you ever done that? Have you ever stopped after you've been going for about 45 minutes saying, oh, I know the way, I know the way? (laughs) Gentlemen, okay. Um... But if you stopped, you know, the worst thing you ever hear if you ask for directions is, well, if I was you, I would not have started from here. (laughs) We cannot expect people to be where we want them to be. We have to meet them where we are. And indeed, we were met where we were, if you think about it. And then we can begin to point them to Christ. I've, put, I've read it put this way about a witness. A good witness is like a signpost. It doesn't matter whether it's old, young, pretty, ugly. It has to point the right direction and be able to be understood. We are witnesses to Christ. We point to him. So having answered the question of who he is, by saying firstly who he isn't and then who he is, John moves on to be that signpost and to say who Christ is. That's probably the most important thing as a believer that you can do, is proclaim who Christ is. To share who he is to you, what he has done, what he is doing, and more importantly, how he is in God's word, how he is revealed. So we learn and we share that truth. Peter knew this. Peter said this, that we had to do it. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness 
and respect. Christ is the hope that is within us. Verses 24 and 25 of our reading. Now they have been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, John had answered that he wasn't any of the people that they were suspecting that he might be. And it leads the religious authorities to another question. Okay, then, on whose authority are you doing these things? Anybody seem to think that that's a very uh, uh, familiar question? Jesus was asked exactly the same thing by the same authorities. Mark 11, 27, 28, one of those times. They came again to Jerusalem And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? This is their shtick, if you like, because they think they're the authority. So they want to know by whose authority. We haven't told you you could do this. So we want to know who's told you. Who are you acting on behalf of? Because the religious authorities at the time thought and proclaimed that they were working on behalf of God, but the problem was half the time they were doing what they wanted and then looking for God to bless what they wanted to do rather than seeking what he wanted them to do. Have you ever fallen into that situation? Taking an action and then trying to justify it later. Or as I like to say, opening your mouth 30 seconds before your brain kicks in, Right? It's one of the lessons God's been teaching me for a long time and will continue to teach me. Listen more, talk less. And to trust and rely on the fact that the answers are in Scripture, it does speak to every circumstance and situation. 26 and 27, John answered them, I baptized with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie... Jesus is there. He is close at hand. He's not necessarily in the crowd at that moment that John can see, but certainly he's around and about. And at this point, John has already baptized him. We'll we'll see that in a moment because he's going to refer back to the baptism, not that it's happening in the later verses. But John is saying he's here. You just haven't recognized him. And John's saying, if you think I'm something special compared to him, no, he's amazing. He's the one. Later in John's Gospel, chapter 3, you know, John the Baptist is going to say, I've got to decrease so that he can increase. Now, John is not saying he himself is nothing. He knows that God loves him. He knows That, but he also knows how important the Messiah is. And the same is true today. We are not unimportant to God. We're amazing. We're loved. We're special to God. He loves us that much that Jesus came to die for us and to rise again, that we might have life with God. He's the one that makes life worth living. But at the same time, John knows He doesn't feel worthy enough to stoop down and untie the sandal of Jesus, which was the lowest task of a servant in those days. But it reminds me of the image that Jesus turns on his head when he talks about himself being a servant. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus washes the disciples' feet at the Last Supper. And in this was shown just how much God was willing to pay the price for us. Really, it helps us to be more humble. It doesn't make us worth less. It makes us worth more. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. We see that little eyewitness detail that we were talking about last week. You know, the specific Bethany because there was more than one. But also I believe that the fact that it was across the Jordan, it was outside of the main land of the promised land, if you like, was beginning already to point to the fact that the message was going to be yes for Israel, but it was also going to be for the Gentiles. It's going to show that this was beyond any barrier, beyond any border or divide. And now we get to perhaps the most impactful description of Jesus that I've experienced in my life, and I hope it rings true with you as well. It's found here in verse 29, as John continues to say who Christ is. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in Wales, because I have four churches, I had communion practically every week, right, because I was moving around. They didn't have it every week, but I did because I had to go move around. But in our service, we, we had some liturgy, and one of the lines was, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world, grant us your peace. I said those words practically every week for eight years and there's a depth to them. There's a reality to them. As we gaze at Jesus at the communion table, as we commune with him physically and spiritually in a very unique way, we remember that it is through his sacrifice, through the Lamb of God who was slain for us, that we can have life. And it would have run the idea of a lamb of God would have rung true with the people of the day because they would have thought back to Abraham when God provided the lamb so that Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed. It would have rung true with the, the Passover lamb that was slain in Egypt so the blood could be put on the lintel so that the angel of death would pass over and instead of death coming to those houses, life would come to them. And now life was coming through Jesus, the fulfillment of all of those things. And the fact is, John is saying he's not just one option amongst many. He is the way. He is the truth and the life, like Jesus would say later on. And so he continues in verses 30 to 33. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, although Jesus is actually John's younger relation, remember they're related, they're cousins, John is referring to that which the gospel writer had in mind and spoke about during the prologue, that Jesus has always been. He was before everyone 
and everything. Although John says he did not know him, they may not have grown up together. They may have been aware of, of each other. You know, you've got, you've got a distant relative out there, haven't you? Some of you that you, you don't actually know, you may know of. So it's that, there's that element to what John, is, John the Baptist is saying. But there's also the reality that he leapt in his mother's womb when he was in the presence of the unborn Christ. And yet, what he's really saying is, I didn't know it was Jesus who was the Messiah until the prophecy that I'd been given had come true. And remember, he's not the only one. James, Jesus' brother, grew up with him. And he, didn't, he knew Jesus, but he didn't accept him as the Messiah until after the resurrection. When did you recognize Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as your Lord and Savior? So you went from knowing about him to knowing him. A few weeks ago, we got a Marco Polo. Anybody know what Marco Polo is? Okay, if you don't, I'll tell you after. We got one from, from Pastor Dustin to the whole staff saying, okay, you've got to choose your favorite verse in the book of John and send a video message. That's basically what Marco Polo does, okay? It sends a video message. And so I answered after a couple of days because I was nervous of doing videos, right? You know me. <laughs> My favorite verse for a long time has been in John has been John 20, 28. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Here's Thomas, known as Doubting Thomas, although I think he gets a bad rep. He just wants to see what everybody else has seen, right, at this point. But he needed to, in order to believe, he needed to touch Jesus. He needed to see the wounds. He needed to put the finger, his finger in the nail marks. And that's what he needed. And you know what? Jesus loved him enough that he showed him. He showed him what he needed in order to proclaim faith. And what does he do? He's the first one to say, my Lord and my God. And if there's hope for Thomas, there's hope for all of us. But what was it for you? Or what will it take for you? If you're waiting, I would encourage you not to wait, but to dive in and respond if you're hearing God calling you to Jesus. I had a friend that needed all the I's dotted and all the T's crossed, you know, needed every answer to every question that they had before they'd fully come to Jesus until the day they realized, actually, I don't need, I don't need all the answers. I just know and need Jesus. I've got other friends that are still hanging out on that fence that we talked about last week, you know. And I'm just praying it's getting more and more uncomfortable. And as we point to Jesus, that they will see him for who he truly is. Now, we get into this whole baptism thing, right? And I'm not going to take a long time because I haven't got a long time. And you could go down a massive rabbit trail here. But the difference between John's baptism with water and Jesus' baptism, the baptism in the name of Jesus is the fact that those who believe, right? Those who are part of the family who come to faith in Jesus Christ, who profess faith, whether they're baptized as an adult or they're baptized as a child and profess faith later, the difference is Jesus dwells within them. He comes physically close and dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And we're to bear witness to that fact by proclaiming who Jesus is, by pointing to him. Finally, verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
This is who Jesus is. He's fully human and he's fully divine. That's our testimony today and we need to be sharing it with people in deed and in word. D.L. Moody walked down a Chicago street one day. He saw a man leaning against a lamppost. The evangelist gently put his hand on the man's shoulder and asked him if he was a Christian. The fellow raised his fists and angrily exclaimed, Mind your own business! I'm sorry if I've offended you, Moody said. But to be frank, that is my business. Even if people reject the gospel, we're called to love them and point them to Jesus. So as we've looked at the example of John the Baptist today, we need to see past him to Jesus. For the whole point of his testimony was and is to be a signpost to the Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May God enable, equip, and encourage us to engage in the ministry of word and deed that many more will know the love of Jesus today and every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you. And there are moments when we know about you and we forget to know you. Help us today to really know you, to love you, and to point others towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.